0: As I said just a few minutes ago, we are beginning our new series called Teach Us to Pray, and it is based on the Lord's Prayer. Now, how many people in the room have said the Lord's Prayer at least once? Hold your hand up. How many people in the room have said the Lord's Prayer at least 10 times? Hold your hand up. Hold your hand up if you've said the Lord's Prayer at least 100 times. How about 500 times? Got some flinches there. How about a 1,000 times? How about 2,000 times? We're not really sure. We have to do the math, you know, depending on how old we are. But maybe since the days we were very small children, like the ones in the room, we've had exposure to a very simple prayer. Now, Jesus could have taught his disciples a very long and complicated prayer. And in fact, all history shows us that typically a rabbi would have a specific type of prayer that would set him apart from other rabbis. And so disciples of a particular rabbi would be known by the prayer that they knew by heart. And it was usually a long and complicated prayer. But when Jesus' disciples asked him about uh, praying and how should we pray, he taught them a very simple, short prayer that even a four-year-old can memorize. Isn't that cool? Jesus wants to connect with people across all cultures and across all ages. And as Linda read a few minutes ago, in Matthew chapter 6, we see where Jesus answers the question, how should we pray? And he does it in the context of some very interesting preaching. In fact, if you have your Bible or if you have your mobile device and you want to take a look at Matthew chapter 6 with me, you're going to see a variety of teachings going on in this whole chapter that deal with one very specific key common note. Particularly as you look at the beginning of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus deals with the subject of giving to the needy, to the poor. And the way he puts that conversation in motion is he basically says in verse 2 when you give to the needy do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. And then if you look on a little bit further in verse 5, as Linda read earlier, he gets into the subject of prayer. But then if you look after that section on down into verse 16, he gets into fasting. Do you know what fasting is? Fasting is when you skip a bunch of meals as an act of worship. And here's what Jesus says, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. And then in the next section, it says treasures in heaven. It says in verse 19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He's dealing with this subject, this common thread, all the way through Matthew chapter 6, of not worshiping to be recognized by who? Other people. And so when he gets into the subject of prayer, starting in verse 5, he continues that same theme. And he's basically saying, when you pray, don't put on a show for anyone. Because prayer is not for humans. Prayer is for you and your God. Prayer is the way that you and your God communicate. And that's it. And that's all. So when you pray, don't prattle on like people try to do in order to earn God's favor with lots of flowery words in prayer. God doesn't need flowery words. He doesn't need to be impressed by you. He doesn't need to know that you mean all the things you say in flowery language. All He wants to hear from is the real you. He's not concerned with what other people think about the substance of your prayers. He's concerned about you, and here's how that looks. Here's what that means in real life. If you think about the relationships in your life, and everybody in this room, I know you well enough to know that you've got at least one significant relationship in your life. Everybody listening by podcast, you've got at least one significant relationship in your life, and what makes that relationship real, what makes it work, is communication. If you've ever been in a relationship before that was strained, maybe you've been through the pain of a breakup or a divorce. Maybe someone has passed away. Maybe you've had a a disagreement at work or something and the relationship fell apart. In most cases, in the pain of a relationship ending, splitting, stopping, or even hitting pause, there was some lack of communication that kept your relationship from being healthy. Communication is what makes relationships work. Wouldn't you agree? And the more you have healthy relationship communication, the more your relationship is going to be healthy. And in fact, if you look at the reality of relationships, whenever you try to pretend in a relationship, and whenever your communication in your relationship is pretense instead of real, that's when a relationship starts to suffer. Whenever you have a healing in a relationship, if you're married and you've been in a fight with your spouse, which happens to the best of us, some of us roll the toothpaste, some of us squeeze it in the middle, some of us like to spend money, And some of us like to save it. Some of us like to travel. And some of us like to stay home in our robe and watch Netflix. There's conflict in marriage. It's a part of it. But the thing that holds a marriage together is loving, restorative, reconciling communication. Think about that. If you have a marriage relationship or a friend relationship or a work relationship that's suffering, maybe what's actually suffering is the communication. And then take that human experience and extrapolate it into your relationship with God. When your relationship with God suffers, when you feel like your relationship with God isn't really there, or maybe you're not hearing from God, Nine times out of ten, it's because communication between you has broken down. You see, this is what Jesus was getting into with his disciples when they were gathered around and he was teaching them about his character, the character of God. He was teaching them about how the kingdom of God works. And the kingdom of God doesn't work by impressing people. The kingdom of God works as we resonate and have communion with the very character and heart of our living God. And that happens first and foremost through communication. This is why Jesus would have talked about little kids entering the kingdom of heaven. Have you thought about the last time you communicated with a small child? Maybe it was over what kind of cereal they were gonna have for breakfast that morning. You can choose Serial A or Serial B? Which would you prefer? Or maybe it was about getting dressed, or brushing hair, or waking up on time. Communication can happen with the smallest and youngest of human beings if you communicate in a way that people can understand. If you communicate with small children in a way that they can understand, then your relationship will be healthy and will grow. Would you not agree? But if you talk over their heads, then you won't be able to communicate and connect with little kids, right? Jesus knew this when he started teaching about the Lord's Prayer. He started teaching people in such a way that they could understand that the communication they needed to have with their sovereign God was not communication with a ruler who was set apart from them and was far away from them, but was going to be communication had with a God who called himself your father. And by sending his son to the cross to die for you and me, what he was doing is empowering his son to rise from the grave for you and me so that we could take on the Sonship of Jesus Christ. That makes you and me, God's child. And so when God communicates with you, He's going to communicate with you in such a way that as His child you can understand His words. He's not going to talk over your head. He's going to reach out to your heartstrings as a father reaches out to a child's heartstrings, right, and makes a connection. The idea is that God is our father. Yes, he's our sovereign and our king. Yes, he's in command. Yes, he created the universe, including us and everything in it. But he wants to be known by you as father and child in an intimate friendly relationship that I would even suggest goes beyond friendly. If you've been a parent to a child, you know that to some extent you can be a friend to your child, but to some extent you can't be a friend to your child. You gotta be the parent, right? That is what God is to you and me. He's a loving benevolent parent who provides for us he also challenges and disciplines us. That's why as Jesus gets into the teaching of the Lord's Prayer, he makes it very clear that God is not only accessible to us as Father, but God loves us that much. He loved us so much that he gave his child so that we could be his children as substitutes. Think about that. God let Jesus go to the cross in our place so that we could be called his children. And that childhood is not conditional upon yours and my performance as his children, is it? It's conditional upon his declaring you his child. And so when you pray to God, you can call out to God as king, as sovereign, as leader and as commander, But his preference would be that you call out to him as father. Like a child would do, like a little kid would do for a human parent. Now as you get into the Lord's Prayer, and you might have found it a little bit weird when Linda did the reading earlier, she basically just read verse 9 of the Lord's Prayer, right? And verse 9 is, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And that's as far as I put the reading in for her to go. We all could keep going and say, your kingdom come and your will be done, and, and that's on earth as it is in heaven, and keep on and on and on because we know the prayer. But what if we stopped and looked at the language in that first verse, in that first piece? Our Father. We've talked about what it means to be God's child and that God desires to be known by us as children to a father, what does it mean that our father is in heaven? Where is heaven? What is heaven? If you ask a child where heaven is, where are they going to point? Up, right? Because down is something else, but heaven has got to be up, right? And in fact, in the culture that Jesus was teaching to, they would agree. The word heaven in the original language is the word that means the same as the Greek god of the sky. Uranos, is the word. And it also is the same understanding the Greeks would have had back then that the sky is pretty much just everything that isn't the ground. Sounds obvious, but the reason they would have taught it that way is because Jesus would talk about God's kingdom being the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of heaven could be considered everything in the sky, or it could be considered something like air. How many people, animals, and plants breathe air? The ones who are living, right? The opposite of the air, which is up, is the ground which is down right God is the kingdom of God's kingdom is the kingdom of heaven it's a kingdom that is not the kingdom of this earth so in other words the kingdoms that we live in that are here on earth are like the kingdom of America right or the kingdom of North America or the kingdom of England or a kingdom of China or Russia, a kingdom that is physically here. What we're talking about is a kingdom that is not of this world, right? It is a kingdom that for people who had a simple understanding of science was simply just not a kingdom of earth, but a kingdom of other, or other than earth, a kingdom of the sky. And so when Jesus is teaching even children about the kingdom of God, he's got to make a distinction. The distinction is that God's kingdom is not this stuff right here. God's kingdom is the other. And that's why he uses something as simple as the sky. Or a nos is the word he would use. It's the same word that's used further down in Matthew chapter 6. When Jesus is talking in verse 25 about not worrying, In fact, it's verse 26 that says, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. That word air in the the scriptures in verse 26 is the same exact original language word as is used for heaven in Jesus' prayer. It's literally considered the air. So Jesus, in the beginning of his prayer, is establishing God's kingdom as one that is set apart from the kingdoms of the world. Does that make sense? Right? He's saying that the king of this kingdom, of the other, is your father. So if you have a king as your father, what does that make you? It makes you a prince or a princess, doesn't it? It makes you someone who is beloved of God, who is an integral part of his kingdom of the air. Now, maybe you feel like you are tethered to the kingdoms of this world. But when you start to feel that way and feel weighed down in your prayers, that is an opportunity to remember who you really are. You are a prince or a princess in the kingdom of the air. And in fact, one day the scripture says, we will all be caught up with Jesus in the air. Now we don't know exactly what that looks like, but it sounds really cool, doesn't it? The same idea that Jesus defies gravity. He rises up in front of his disciples, ascends into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And one day he will return, to judge the living and the dead, right? But the scripture says he will return how? Not by Uber, not by train, but on the clouds. You're talking about a God who is different, a king who is different. And in that way, you get this concept of the sky and the air and heaven being distinctly different from the kingdoms of the world that you and I live in every single day we are a part of that kingdom. We are a part of another kingdom, a spiritual one. While we are parts of a kingdom of the earth, we are also royalty, as it were, in the kingdom of heaven. And so the beginning of the Lord's Prayer identifies our relationship as such, our Father in heaven. And then it talks about the name of God. Have you ever thought about the hallowed word that comes in the Lord's Prayer? What in the world does hallowed mean? Probably the closest connection you might make to that is All Hallows' Eve, otherwise known as Halloween, right? Why do we have All Hallows' Eve? It was a recognition the early church had of all the saints, The next day was going to be called All Saints' Day. So the day before, which is October 31st, would be called All Saints' Eve or All Hallows' Eve. What does it mean to be hallowed? Well, a Bible dictionary might put it this way. You're given over exclusively to a single use or purpose. You're consecrated, dedicated, devoted, or sacred. Regarded with particular reverence or respect. And you can see all the synonyms there. Holy, blessed, sacrosanct. How often do you use that word at cocktail parties, right? It's the idea that you are set apart and your name is holy. So when we sing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, what we're saying is that the name of God is set apart It is different than all other names. It is the name by which we are saved. It is the name of God by which we are saved. It is the only name through which we are saved. The name of God is different. It is set apart. That's what it means to be holy, set apart. If you take a look at the screen, If you're listening by podcast, you see a number of names of God. Creator, Adonai, Elohim, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, Jehovah-Jireh, the great I Am. And then in the middle in black letters, you see Yahweh. This originally was the unspoken name of God that comes from ancient Israel. Four letters put together in an unspeakable word. If you tried to speak that word without any vowels, you have a hard time, right? So somewhere along the way, somebody put some vowels in there and made it Yahweh. You might hear that name. But God's name is unique. We revere it as blessed and holy. That is why in the Ten Commandments, it will say, we don't take the name of the Lord in vain. What does that mean? It means simply that we recognize the name of God for what it is. We recognize God for who He is. All-powerful, all-knowing, all-sovereign. But even as Jesus says, Hallowed be your name to His Father, He's saying it to His Father. And he's commanding and instructing his disciples, which, guys, for all intents and purposes, and in fact, is you and me today, here and now, we can say to God, our Father, who is where? Not of this earth, but everywhere else, and one day coming to reclaim the earth as well your name is holy." So, when we pray, how do we address God? Do we address God as someone who is unreachable, untouchable, and holy, set apart from you and me? You know, if we remained in our sin, then we'd have to answer yes, right? But because of Jesus, that sin is gone. It's not because of how well you've done in life. It's not because of what you say or do. It's because of what has been said and done. When God spoke, the earth came into being. The kingdoms of the earth came into fruition when God spoke. Also, when He spoke and said, I will send a Messiah... Someone who will suffer and die and rise again for you. That actually happened, didn't it? And what, me, what that means to you and me, as the kids come back in, what that means to you and me is that we can call out to our Heavenly Father on demand, as we want, as we need, and as He calls us to do in worship. Call on His name, remembering who He is and who He has called us to be. And we never ever ever have to doubt that He loves us and wants to hear from us. Now let me ask you a question. When you pray, who are you praying to? Who is there listening to your prayers? Do you believe that it's the same God that we've been talking about today? If not, my hope is, and my prayer is, that you will be relieved. That the God who wants to hear your voice is that same God that you, but calls you prince and princess. Do you know that God? If you don't, my hope is today you'll be relieved and comforted and excited to go to God in prayer. The next time you approach Him, your prayer will be empowered, will be informed by who you are and by who He is. Is that fair to ask? Remember when you pray who you are and whose you are. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are a sovereign and powerful God. You are the God who created the universe just by speaking words. That's crazy, but you did it. You're the God who also spoke prophecy through prophets and through disciples of yours who over the ages said things that sounded crazy in their time, but then came to fruition. Things like Jesus coming to die on a cross and then rise again to become the Messiah of Israel and indeed king of the whole world, including this earth one day. God, thank you for being our sovereign and thank you for being at the same time our heavenly father, a father who draws us near, a father who has no barriers between us, a father who will remind us through heavenly parents what it's like to relate to a child, the child that I am in your kingdom. God, I confess to you that sometimes I don't think of you as God, sometimes I don't think of you as father, and sometimes I don't think of you as king. I confess to you that that is my weakness, to think of you of less than you are. But thanks be to God through the teaching of Jesus, who we follow By the power of the Spirit, you have taught us who you are and who we are. So God, from now on as we pray, let us be empowered and inspired by your Spirit to pray to our sovereign, loving, heavenly Father as you are and as we are, your children. We lift all this to you and ask for your empowerment in our prayers from this day forward. In your name we pray, and together we say, Amen.